Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you today. Um, the last two weeks being sick, um, I'm so grateful for the pastors that God has assembled here at First Baptist to continue the ministry um, during this time. And so, Corey, thank you so much for preaching last week. Um, this morning, I want to invite you to open to one of my favorite Christmas passages, and it is found in Philippians chapter 2. Um, I know a lot of times we don't think about Philippians being the Christmas story, but here in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 11 today, we find in perfect portrait the Christmas message of what God has done for you and for me. And I just want you to know that the goal of today is for you and me to see Jesus. It is to see Jesus. In this passage, that's the focus. But can I just warn us before we turn to it? It is our tendency to live a very me-centered reality. For, for, for us to even turn to a passage like this and just immediately start thinking about ourselves. Of how that really the main point is for me to serve and to do things and to, and to be a better person. And we start to just immediately do the application. And it's important for us to apply things. In fact... Before this and then after it, Paul is applying this gospel portrait. But there is this reality that Zig Ziglar captured. He said that it's your attitude, not your aptitude, that determines your altitude. And you may have heard that before. It's your attitude, not your altitude. Felton Joseph, i to you. He said that to my son just the other day. Hey, your attitude determines your altitude. But I want to submit to you today that in this passage, it's the altitude of our view of Christ that will determine our attitude. And for you and me, many times, our view of Christ is low. He's a good guy. He's, he's a good example. We should be more like Jesus and, and, and help people and do good things. And that's a low view of Jesus. I mean, that could be said of my grandfather. That could be said of many of our grandparents. That could be said of, a, of an uncle or a brother, a sister, a mother. They're a good person. They help people. I should be like them. That's a low view of Jesus. You and I are invited in this passage to lift our eyes and behold Jesus and to see his deity and his incarnation all mingled to see the power that was his denied and then put on display through service and obedience, even obedience to death on a cross. And then to behold that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You and I are invited today to an altitude a view of Christ that will, Paul is saying, change our attitudes. It will. And so I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. God's word says, and God speaks to you as his people today, saying, adopt this same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that in this passage, you give us a view of the one person that we need to see more than anyone else. The one person that is able to transform us, our hearts and minds. And so, Lord, in a day and in a moment and in a condition of a sinner saved by grace, we are tempted to think first and foremost of ourselves. May we instead be oriented to Christ Jesus and may that change everything else. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. A lot of ink has been spilled treating this passage. As your pastor, there's an intimidation factor when you're preparing messages and you come to a passage like this one. This one is chock-a-block full, as my previous pastor used to say, of theological richness. And I think it's important for us to step back for just a second and to look at the bigger picture. Is Paul writing a theological treatise like we see in Romans in different places? Or is he doing something maybe a little bit different, a little bit more boots on the ground, a little more practical? Is he doing something that he's not intending to be something of the 400 level of theology that advanced, you know, class, but instead that he's saying, no, 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 this is what your, your knuckles are to be white with all the time. You're to have a grip on this so tight that it's changing you on a regular basis. And I think it's the latter. I, I think that what Paul, because of how this passage falls in the text, he's just been walking through and communicating, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. And then right into verse 5, adopt this same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Then you turn over to verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. How? By holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ Jesus that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on a sacrificial, on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. There's a practical nature that bookends this passage. There's a core that we see here that I think Paul is wanting us to remember and to reclaim and to never lose sight of. And it's the gospel. 
And that should come as no surprise to us because Paul endeavors again and again in his writings to reorient the people of God again and again and again to the simplicity and the power of the gospel. And here what he's putting forward is, brothers and sisters, there ought to be in you a gospel attitude. A gospel attitude. He says the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus ought to be in you gospel attitude. And what he does then is he situates that attitude that ought to be in us in that which is outside of us in Jesus Christ. That it's not just in Christ high and lifted up. It's not just Christ at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not even Christ before the incarnation. It is Christ through the incarnation. It's Christ through the power and message of the gospel. And he puts it on display here in this passage in ways that we need to remember are for us today. This isn't reserved for seminarians. This is for us, the people of God. He's writing to men and women, boys and girls, who he wanted to recall and remember the gospel. And there's thoughts about whether what's represented here, it may be kind of broken out in a little bit different text in your Bible. Mine's kind of indented to kind of signify that maybe this was something different in the first century, that maybe it was a, an early hymn. We don't know. Some of your Bibles, it will be included just like the rest of the text. But regardless, we know this. Paul was always trying to recenter and remind us of the gospel because he knows that it's our only hope for an attitude that will honor the Lord. It's our only hope for a life that will be pleasing before him. And not only in a moment, but for all of eternity. Because he knows that he has put forward his son as the template of our lives. And he has put forward his son as the only means for us to know that life. And so, here we go. Gospel attitude. First of all, what we see from this passage, and we're just going to kind of walk through the passage again and again, looking at how these things are illustrated. We see, first of all, a gospel attitude is formed by constantly being reminded of the gospel. We see that a gospel attitude is formed by constantly being reminded of the gospel. You see, this isn't the only place where Paul reminds the church about these things. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he again brings the church back to the gospel and he says, I want to remind you of what was of first importance. And then he goes right through the, 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 the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And he walks through this, but look how he does it here. He says, adopt the same attitude of that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. I want to provide some commentary, some understanding for what he's saying here. He's communicating that who existing in the nature of God, pointing to this reality that Christ existed before he was born. This points to something very significant about our understanding of God and, and who God is as a being. That he is eternally three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These sort of passages help to orient us to this important understanding of who God is. It would be, it would be blasphemy for Paul to somehow link Christ it's having nature of God. And then to use Isaiah 45 in the way that he does here of being fulfillment language about Christ and every knee bowing to him if Christ Jesus is not God. 
If he's not Emmanuel, God with us, then we are all idolaters. We are worshiping another God, a little g God. But if the scriptures are true, and they are, then Jesus Christ, the Son of God, existed before the incarnation, before being born of a virgin. And that's what this passage is pointing to, who existing in the nature of God, listen, did not consider equality with God, distinction, father from son, as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You've got to bring verses 6 through 8 together to look at the movement that happens. That being in nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the form, the nature of a servant, and became obedient in that nature of a servant, even to death, death on a cross. That doesn't affect us the same way that it did the original audience. You see, let's just work our way backwards. The cross, we adorn our homes with crosses. We put crosses on top of buildings. We wear crosses as jewelry. And please don't hear me getting on to you for these things, but what that communicates is we have domesticated something like the electric chair. It would be like us having syringes by which you inject someone with a lethal dose of a drug to kill them, hanging from our ears or from necklaces. We've lost the impact of what the cross was. The cross was reserved for the worst criminals. And he became obedient even to death, death on a cross. Death by lethal injection, death by an electric chair. We've got to let it impact us. Just the humility of this one who took on the likeness of humanity. That same words found over in Romans chapter 8. And it's this form that he was like us, but yet his nature was different than ours. We have a sin nature. Jesus did not. He was without sin. The writer of Hebrews makes this so clear. He was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted, but he never gave in to temptation. Part of that means that he was tempted beyond what you and I are tempted because we give in. We stop short. But Jesus never did. And he remained without sin. He emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant. Look at the word form there in verse 7 and look back at verse 6, existing in the form of God. That's that same word. It could be translated in different ways, but the nature, who existing in the nature of God took on the nature of a servant. And there's one biblical writer, D.A. Carson, that notes that it, a lot of times what we think is that even though he was God, he became a humble servant. And he says that it might be better for us to think that it's because he's God that he took on the nature of a servant. I mean, just consider that for a moment, that it's not contrary to the nature of God to become a servant. It is because of his nature. Because he is God, of course he took on the form of a servant. And, and try that against all of the Bible. Look across the landscape of Scripture. God creating creation. Why? To serve humanity. Even in the fall, God serving humanity, clothing them as they went out from the garden. 
God himself, when he could have destroyed entire nations, instead using his people to preserve them. Stories like Joseph at the end of Genesis. Rather than killing Pharaoh, he uses Joseph to prepare Pharaoh in Egypt in order to prosper during seven years of famine. God doing these things. God, this serving God, this servant, worthy of praise, worthy of worship, worthy of our lives and adoration. And yet, because of his nature, he's constantly serving his creation. He's he's constantly serving those that he made, even those who have rebelled against him. And guess what? That includes you and me. It has been his nature all along. And so it makes perfect sense that this God, whose history is replete in the Old Testament, would of course send his son to come and to be among us. This God who tabernacled with his people, even when there wasn't a fixed temple. This God who is pleased with man. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. We capture the essence of this reality in our songs at Christmas. And it is true. And we need the reminder that comes, the attitude that will only come when we consider the nature of God. Why is that significant? Because if the nature of God is always the nature of a servant, then for you and I, If we're gonna embody God, in other words, we're gonna be dwelt by his Holy Spirit, he's gonna be in us, then that same attitude that was in Christ Jesus ought to be in you, you and me. It's a y'all here. It's not individual. It ought to characterize all of us. And let me tell you some of the abuses of this passage. We look at this and we say, oh, well, Jesus was in, in, in nature God, and so I am now with Jesus, so I am in nature God. And we take on this God complex. That, that's common. If you go to some more charismatic leaning churches, even today, even this morning in New Orleans, you'll get the flavor of that sort of teaching of this, of that we're united with Jesus, and so therefore we have authority. Therefore, I can speak things into existence with my words. And all of these ideas that run contrary to this passage. Notice what he says. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. The King James Version says taken by robbery. In other words, he's he's giving it up. His grip on those, those rights that he had, he gave up. And what he instead gripped was servanthood. Brothers and sisters, That's what our life is to be characterized by. Not by our authority, but by giving up our rights. Not by my ability to speak something with authority, but instead in order to humble myself and serve and love one another, to love my neighbor as myself. That attitude that was in Christ Jesus, that nature of Christ Jesus ought to be in us as his people. But we need that gospel attitude, and it only comes by being formed constantly by a reminder of the gospel. Second, a gospel attitude is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is not just encouraging us to be better people. We are engrossed in a self-help culture that's constantly trying through podcasts and books and coaches and things like that 
to make us better, to make us more efficient, to make us better thinkers, to have better attitudes, to, to deal with the battle in our minds and things like that. And listen, there's some good things that can be gleaned here and there. I'm not at all saying that there's nothing helpful in all of that. But I am submitting to you that we as the people of God, we have a source of transformation that the world does not. That source of transformation is the spirit of God that indwells us. And that spirit is, is, in, is at one with Christ Jesus. So there's going to be within us the very nature of Christ Jesus. And that's supposed to change how we deal with everything. In the home, in the workplace, in our community, here at church, that same attitude is to be in us. That's what Paul's calling us to. But what he's reminding us of, it's only sourced through a person, the person of Christ Jesus. You and I still need the person, Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can begin to distance myself. If Jesus is here, center place, I can begin to think about Jesus. And I can begin to just read about Jesus. And the more and more that I just kind of treat him as other I actually begin to venture into a space where I almost treat him like an idea. He's a concept. He's a, a, a moral code that we live by. That we start to use phraseology and, and, and ideas where we're just saying, you know, like we're, we're Jesus people. And, and what that can sometimes begin to mean is like there's just a kind of an ethic that we live by. And it's an ethical code. Jesus is an ethical code. When in reality, brothers and sisters, over and over and over again in the Gospels, what we see is people coming to a person. And you and I still are in need of that person. And while we can't reach out and touch the hem of his garment, we can experience his presence in the same way. And that comes through his Holy Spirit. We are to be a people desperate for his spirit. That's how we experience his presence. That's how his nature is formed in us. That's how our minds are transformed is through the power of his Holy Spirit illuminating his word so that we behold Christ rightly. We need the person. We need the person of the gospel, the gospel attitude that is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what he has done. What Paul does is he walks us through and he tells us that Jesus, Jesus existed in the form of God. He had the very nature of God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Who did he serve? Us. Taking on the likeness of humanity, being made just like us, but without sin. He felt pain. The nails hurt the thorns pierced. And when, he had become, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel attitude is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel doesn't stop with Jesus in a grave. For this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. 
A gospel attitude is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. And can I tell you that Jesus is victorious. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus, right now, the person is standing at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for you and me because he loves you. And he is committed to his church. He will purify and make us ready for the day of Christ Jesus. His promise is sure. It is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He will not fail. He will come. And he will come as a victorious king to judge the living and the dead. It is important for us to remember these realities because as we do and as we come to the person, the person of Jesus, and we return again fresh to the gospels to know more of this person and then to understand the riches of this person in the New Testament, we are changed. Our minds are transformed by his spirit and our attitudes begin to lift. Why? Because our view of him is rightly high. You can't have too high a view of Jesus. You can have a wrong view. You can see him wrongly, but you can't see him too highly. You will never think of him too highly. You will never exalt him more than you should. And so give your lives to that, to looking at him and beholding him high and lifted up. This one that one day every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess his lordship of. Which brings us to this, the gospel attitude is for all nations. You see, we can't separate the gospel message, the Christmas story, for who the Christmas story was intended for, of who he came for. And that is not just for us. It's not just for us in New Orleans. It's not just for us in the United States of America. He came for people of all nations. Every tribe and tongue are featured around his throne. They're all worshiping the, the one that was slain, the one who died on that cross for them, proclaiming his goodness and his greatness and worshiping the one seated on the throne. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so it is good, it is good for us to proclaim this gospel message. Now let me tell you what some people have done wrongly with this passage. They've said, well, that points to what would be called universalism. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's basically what happens when I become a Christian. And so if one day everybody's gonna do that, well, then we all become Christians. All in that moment doing that. Is that what the Bible communicates? Because if it does, then man, a lot of weight is all of a sudden off of us in this task of evangelism. We don't really need to tell anybody because we're all gonna eventually confess anyway. But what is Paul doing here? He's quoting a passage that's worth reading from its original text. It's from Isaiah chapter 45 and it begins in verse 21. And God says, there is no other God but me, a righteous God and savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone out from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me and every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. You say, well, Chad, that still doesn't make the point. Now listen to the end of verse 24 and 25. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. 
all the descendants of Israel will be justified and find glory through the Lord. You see, Paul constantly in his writings is hearkening back to Old Testament passages. It's almost like he was an Old Testament preacher. He loved to expound and explain Old Testament texts. And it seems that that's exactly what he's doing in this passage is he's preaching it. He's preaching Isaiah 45 to the church at Philippi in that day. And he is reminding them that there's a day coming. There's a day coming when all will acknowledge and there will be a judgment that takes place. And those that have rejected Jesus and the lordship that is rightfully his, they will be put to shame. But those who have been saved will enter into his glory forever. That's important for you and I to understand. Because we live in a day where nobody wants us telling anybody about Jesus. And can I be honest? We live in a day when it becomes so easy not to tell anybody about Jesus. Things seem to go pretty smooth as long as you don't open your mouth about him. But in the workplace, it can begin to hurt your reputation. In your family gatherings, it can begin to make things a little cold. Brothers and sisters, we are living in light of a reality that will take place. And so in love, I implore you to love others with the gospel because it is a good news message for all nations. And the nations are turning to him. Brothers and sisters are coming to faith in North Africa right now. Men and women, boys and girls are coming to faith in Europe right now through a gospel ministry and right here in New Orleans. Men and women, boys and girls are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because this gospel message is intended for all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. That reality should change our attitude. I mean, just try that on for a minute. If it's for all nations, if it's ultimately for all peoples, then what should our attitude be to be to those who don't look like us or don't speak the same language as us. It should be one of grace and joy of extending and holding out good news. It should be one of hospitality, of inviting in just as Christ extended himself to us and came and dwelt with us. So we should be going out and seeking the lost, enjoying relationship and fellowship with them. In the workplace, it can be difficult when you're known as a believer where you work. Suddenly, your actions are tried against seemingly another standard than everyone else's. Your decisions are, are tried in a sense that others aren't. But brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Greater is he who is within you than he who is within the world. He is faithful he is faithful. It may not work out. I can't promise you your job. But I can promise you this, a faithful God who honors all who are faithful to him. I promise you this. I encourage you with this. And so let your attitude, it's the main point that Paul's making. It's the one exhortation in this passage. Let the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus be in you. Be in you. But that only comes through Christ Jesus. We use a tool called the three circles here at First Baptist to communicate the gospel message. And it begins with a story of brokenness because that's what you and I are born into. Separated from God, 
but that wasn't his design. His design was good. It included a relationship unhindered with him and a beautiful relationship with one another. But sin, sin separated us from God. Sin is anytime we pursue anything as good other than what God said is good. And we've all done it. We're all born into a condition in which we want to pursue it. As much as we try to get back to God's good design on our own, we can't. But there was one who came and who lived among us. One who humbled himself, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or used for his own advantage. But he took on the form of a servant and became obedient, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, literally raised him from the grave, seen by many witnesses, walked with him, talked with him, ate with him. He then ascended into heaven, and one day he will return. And that will be the day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for some, it will be a confession, just as it was in this life, a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for others, it will be a concession. They will finally concede he is. He is Lord. I rejected him, but I concede that now he is. And they will face punishment. But brothers and sisters, we are to call out and to bring this good news of the gospel to our city and to the nations. I know that we live in a moment of violence. My hearts are heavy. I mean, I don't have many hearts. My heart is heavy for what's happening in our city right now. I know that the that the crime, the shootings, the violence, it is, it's unnerving and it can scare us and it can cause us to withdraw from our city. And the evil one says, hallelujah, because that's exactly what he wants. He wants us to withdraw. He wants us to live in fear. But the gospel invites us to bring this good news into a hurting city because guess what? Most of New Orleans is hurting right now. Most of New Orleans is living in fear. Most of New Orleans is longing for something different. And so will we bring it to them? Will we bring this good news to New Orleans and all nations? I'll admit to you, I've been a little stingy in my neighborhood with the gospel. I'll be honest with you on that one. That's one thing that I've been praying. And Nate, thank you for leading us to pray for the lost. To pray for those that we want to see come to Christ. Last time he led us to do that, I prayed for a specific neighbor. And when I got home that day from church, that neighbor was on his porch. And he's never engaged me in talking about church stuff. He knows what I do and just, you know, we kind of kept it there. But when I got out of my car that day praying for him in that same way, he said, hey, man, what would you preach today? Door flung open. Be able to share the good news. Brothers and sisters, we've got to be praying for the lost in bringing this gospel message to our city and to the nations. So, are you in this room near or far? You see, that's how the three circles concludes is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we give our lives to him and we today enter into this place where he is Lord, he changes everything and we begin to grow into a relationship with him. But we've got to be honest, am I in a growing relationship with him or am I far from him? And I keep trying to get back, but I'm not trusting the person, Jesus, and what he did for me. I encourage you today to make this a day of lordship 
of Jesus Christ in your life. Let me pray for us. Father, in this moment for each one of us, I know that the majority of this room, Father, is the church gathered. And so I pray, Father, for the church that today we will return to this fresh, exalted view of Jesus and being reminded that the Christmas story is the gospel message. And it is the message that our city so desperately needs in this moment. So Lord, help us please not to be stingy with the gospel, especially in Christmas, Lord, please, would you open doors for us to bring the gospel message to our neighbors and to our family and to our coworkers. But Lord, for the person in this room, I pray right now that they've never bowed their, they've never bowed their knee And they've never confessed with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That you would bring them to a place where they confess their need for Jesus and give their life fully to him. If you're here today and that's you, then I want to invite you to do something in an act of response right now. I want you to come and just kneel right here at these steps, considering this almost like an altar coming to the Lord and just kneeling and giving your life to him. For others in this room, you may just need to come and there's a specific area in your life where you have not been demonstrating the Lordship of Jesus. You've been worrying about it, you've been working on it, but you've not been giving it to him. You've not been acknowledging his Lordship over that specific person, that situation, whatever it is that you're going through right now. I wanna invite you also to come and just kneel at these steps confess that he is Lord. Give it back to him. Trust him. And then for the rest, I invite for all of us to stand as we sing a song of response. And for those that are needing to just come and kneel and acknowledge his lordship fresh again, the altar is open. You respond in this moment.